0: feel like you're missing out on your CES fix this year? Sadly we all are in the physical world but we are exploring the best of digital Uh, and by the best of digital I mean bringing digitally um, the taster, the best pieces and the most diverse content from the world's experts um, via What's Next uh, and our CES special we will be introducing a number of experts this week to make sure that we are bringing CES to you my guest today, Shafi Ahmed, is, a, is, is not only a personal friend but I, I, I would consider, as would almost anyone that wish, wishes to talk about medtech, the leader in his field. Now, the first time I met Shafi, um, he was reading his own introduction. This time I will read his introduction because this man has not only got the, the most I- I comprehensive background in the things that he's achieved, but also I'm never going to remember them. So Professor Shafi Ahmed is an award-winning surgeon, teacher, futurist, innovator, and entrepreneur. He's a TEDx and international keynote speaker and is faculty at Harvard Medical School, Barts Medical School, Imperial College London, and Queen Mary University, and many more, um, where he teaches medicine, innovation, and digital transformation. And now, that doesn't do Shafi justice. So Shafi, please just give us a little bit of a rundown, not only of what you, your incredible background and the the world's most watched surgeon which is an incredible title um but perhaps what's been going on for you in 2020?
1: So 2020 uh, has been a really interesting day at time for all of us uh, Dean you've seen the challenges that Covid has brought us Uh, and I think for us at the forefront of healthcare uh, we've um, seen the drive for innovation we've seen the need for change we've seen people's perceptions of digital technologies change enormously and what we've seen is the utilisation and the kind of the um, translation of all these technologies you and I have been discussing for years now into proper clinical practice. So for me, it's been a kind of, uh, we say it quite regularly in technology, of course, it's a paradigm shift in the way we practice medicine, uh, but also in the way we teach people globally, the way we connect people, for example. So I think 2020 has been a kind of real, uh, I guess it's been a springboard, essentially, for healthcare and technology. And it's great to be here, of course, Dean, talking to you about some of these ideas in the next few minutes or so around how the world is evolving, what we can learn from the last nine months to push forward into 2021.
0: Being the world's most watched surgeon. Um, how have you... You know that's a title and a half, isn't it? But you've you've demonstrated that through various all the acronyms through the VR and, and AR and, and everything else available to us. How how have you actually translated that? So what so what was the the event or the the piece that that first got you out to the world for that?
1: So uh, let's go back a few years. So 2014. It's now six years. I can't believe it's gone so quickly, Dean. So you remember the Google Glass that came out back in 2012 or 13 or so, and it was a utility, was a device that allowed you to, you know, wear like a wearable, a uh, glasses on your head, for example. But it very powerful and way before its time. Yeah, we both know that, right? And actually, what allowed was this utility to be able to stream, to record, to speak, um, and actually share what you're watching, points of view to uh, a lot of people. So I thought, why why can't I use that to teach people, you know, um, more globally? So part of my work is global health, trying to impact people globally, improve health outcomes, improve access to education. That's been my drive for many years. Also teaching uh, medical students, surgical trainees uh, across the globe. So when that came out, it really challenged the way we could probably teach uh, our future generations. In the past, you know, I can see uh, a quick example. We have many students now operating theatres in the UK and around the world, uh, a lot of surgical trainees, for example, or doctors, and they clamber around to see what's going on. It's never a great experience. It's uh, an experience steeped in tradition, in fact, which hasn't been challenged for decades, if not centuries. We're all taught in this thing called the operating theater. It's a theater, right? So it makes this kind of whole um, kind of this kind of um, environment, one of being more theatrical rather than actually purposely built for teaching. So I thought, okay, we can do better. Google Glass came out. It was good technology. We reconfigured some of the software to be able to stream a live operation. And all I did with them was, okay, let's use this wearable tech. Let's stream an operation through my eyes. In that case, I was performing a cancer operation uh, and we streamed that live to students around the world. And just by a single click on their uh, smartphone or their iPad, they could watch what I was watching. They could interact with text messages into my screen. You know, the Google Glass was, of course, in the corner of the eye. I could interact with them. So it was the first really world interactive learning, I guess, using these new technologies. And it went global. On that day, I think I taught about 15,000 or 14,000 students across the globe in 118 countries. And what it demonstrated to to me was the fact that you could share knowledge so easily, so quickly by simply having a 3G connection. Now we've got to 4G, now 5G, of course, the last six years. But people are now connected better than before. I was teaching people in remote parts of the world, Dean, in islands on the Pacific, from Australia to uh, South America, from the North and the Scandinavian countries to South Africa. It just showed that this uh, global community that we have was, um, was excited about this, these future technologies. Fast forward 2000 and... Um, uh, 20, of course, six years later, we are now seeing the the kind of the use cases. We are now more remote. We've been pushed to teach remotely, like Zoom, like Teams, what are we using for those platforms? And now we're seeing the need for AR, VR, learning tools going forward. So for me, it was just a kind of um, a glimpse of the future in 2014, which I've kind of working on for the last six, seven years. But now we've seen the wider community embrace those changes because of the desperate need uh, with this current pandemic,
0: so I mean, it sounds like, say, six years ago, Google Glass. We we were all of us there with with our our headsets. We were putting them on and then mostly quite quickly taking them off again because it was it was almost too much of a consumer focus. That's and that was because the media was talking about it and it and it immediately brought it to consumers. Whereas you, of course, you look stupid as a consumer walking around with these things. But what you were able to do was genuinely use it within, you know, within enterprise for one of a better word, but actually bring it to the the right place and what would seem to have been the right time. So did you find that 2020 was not only useful for the things that you've been talking about for such a long time, but have you managed to bring things to the table over the last 12 months that you thought, hang on a minute, either this wasn't gonna stick or it would take a long time to do it, or you've been able to take advantage of that window of opportunity, for want of a better word, not, not something we would have talked about as 2020 being opportunities.
1: No, I think the opportunity is the right word to say. It has been. So although the pandemic has given us uh, a lot of misery around the world, it's also been the opportunity to think differently. And I think that is an important word. So certain things have changed. Uh, what I think has changed the last nine months is that, uh, first of all, the language of digital is much more, Uh, present in hospital life, people thinking about innovation, people's mindsets have shifted from these kind of linear expressions and linear thoughts to more exponential ways of thinking and actually how to solve some of the problems and so I think that's been great so therefore with that industry partners are coming in we've seen that of course with the the vaccine that's come out in a short amount of time how they work together and collaborate with industrial partners we've seen also the fact that we um, can bring this digital language into clinical practice. We've seen the rules and regulations change, the regulatory bodies, for example, are saying that we can do much faster, much quicker, et cetera. So the whole ecosystem around healthcare is working much faster uh, at pace, but again, safely, using the same risk analysis that we always use. I and mean, if you go back six years ago, of course, I was facing lots of challenges around the information governance, around these live streaming operations, uh, the legal framework, of course, uh, the regulations, um, the confidentiality, the ethics, many things we were kind of working on. The last six years, we've seen other industries also help us in that in that journey. Now, what I mean by that, of course, uh, Dean, if you look at things like the, the um, you know the autonomous cars, for example, the autonomy working with ethics, confidentiality, we're learning from other industries. And actually, what we're seeing this kind of this convergence, if you like, of not just one industry but many industries and technologies and healthcare. So what I've seen is a really kind of a fertile ground now, where these kind of ideas that are generated. Can be shared more widely across various tech sectors. And ultimately, healthcare is improved because of it. And ultimately, the quality of the outcomes of patients also improved. The other thing to think about technology when I see these technologies in my hand, and you know, they're real, they're amazing things to see, but you have to be aware that. Just throw technology at a problem isn't the solution. It's define the problem that you're trying to solve, see which technology might be of useful in that case, and do it sensibly. One of the things I kind of have a problem with is people just throw technology at a problem. That's the answer, that's the solution. It's not, it's okay. In healthcare, we have certain barriers, certain problems, how to solve them. Can we bring the right tech at the right time? It could be AI, it could be VR. It could be, you know, kind of a voice tech, whatever it is. And does it actually offer improvement to the patient experience, patient outcomes? Is it cost effective? Is it future proof? So I, I think all those things you think about when you're thinking about change, um, the last thing I'd say, Dean, about that is, it's not just about the technology, of course. It's change management. The most difficult thing about implementing technology into clinical practice is actually changing the minds of the people around you. It's change management. The, the whole process, the structure of, of change on introduction of a different idea, for example. And that's the hardest thing, I think, that people don't actually understand. It's bringing that new idea into the clinical place so this become accepted and you overcome some of the issues around people's, um, I guess, um, uh, people's perceptions around bringing these new uh, exponential technologies into
0: life. That's fascinating, to, and, and it, that change making and making making it happen. One thing that's interesting for me is 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 how CES is perceived in its in its physical presence. Obviously, it's not there this year, um, it, and it, that's that's how it always feels. It feels as if you have to approach it, as if it's throwing everything at you, because ninety nine percent of that stuff will not be back there next year. We all know that. Um, but it's one of the great ways to discover um, it, and, and short circuit the process, I guess, because in, to do it right, yes, of course you approach what needs a solution and you work your way backwards and how, how are you going to solve that and what are you going to do with it. But the short it's certainly from a consumer perspective, is to go, right, here's everything wade in. Just pick something randomly from wherever you're going to do, which is why it's quite difficult when it's now we're trying to digitally replicate that. Um, because you naturally start with a search or you start with the thing that you're presented with and it can't you can't be presented with everything it'd be like going to Google and seeing the trillions of, of search results all at once um, but you can do that like when you wander in a library and you can randomly pluck a book off the shelf CES is the equivalent of randomly plucking a piece of useless technology off off a desk but the chances are you can stumble across things there um, Something else you said that I really, really wanted to ask you was about, you're talking about the ethics and the legality, um, which is really kind of interesting to see from a medical point of view, is do you feel that the, we're almost, the, the speed of change in the technology that's being delivered to us, or at least the concept of the technology that's being delivered, is outpacing the thought that's going into the legality or, or more importantly, the ethics of what should be done. Um, and, 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 and is there a particular area like that mind implant brain implants, or however that could possibly um, shape up?
1: But the legal framework in healthcare lags way behind. maybe five, ten, fifteen years behind.
0: The digital transformation is
1: fast and rapid. What we have to do is just be sensible. One of the things about legal frameworks and the kind of the, the ethics around these technologies is okay, what can we achieve? What are the limitations here? What are the issues for patient safety, patient health? Are we doing the right thing? And all that you can do in the situation is change as you go along, but rapidly. You have to mitigate risk as far as possible. You can't mitigate risk altogether. You minimise the best availability, having all the right people in the room. Whether it's the information governance team, whether it's the legal team, whether it's someone talking ethics and the the kind of the. Uh, um, the confidentiality clause, etc. Okay, we're on a mission to change. So take all those stakeholders with you. And the other thing that's been really apparent during the pandemic is the patient voice. I think medicine for decades has been very paternalistic. Dean, we've kind of, as doctors and healthcare workers, we've assumed we know what's right for our patients. This is what's right. I'm telling you because I know better, kind of thing. Who would have thought a year ago uh, most patients would be okay with telling medicine we're telling them it's not the right thing for a long time? And now. Uh, telemedicine's got up by 8,000% in the last nine months. Who would have thought we could break bad news to a patient at home, for example? Was that possible? A year ago, you may recall a doctor in the US who broke bad news to a patient using a telemedicine device and he was heavily criticised by being unethical. A year later, it's the norm. So the patients actually want more convenience. They want more immediate healthcare at their home, for example, they've been crying out for years. We actually be resistant reticent about giving it to them, thinking we know better. So what it's done is reshaped that conversation, that future care will be patient-driven, it'll be more personalized, of course, it'll be more precise, it'll be more convenient. It's what society needs, and what we have now thinking about to change that model. So I, I think that's what's helped in the last nine months, is that kind of changing kind of relationship with our patients using all these technologies and, of course, sharing data at the right time to improve the and, I, and this is why I, I go back to your conversation, your, your language of user experience and user interface, which we never been really using in healthcare. But actually, we're actually delivering that as we speak because of the changes in the way we treat our patients.
0: That, um, that user interface, so that, I, I, the interesting thing there is it works from very, very much from both sides here. So you as, a, as an industry professional, um, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear your take on how you think um i say how you think i know that you already practice in in a way that that allows you to control things and communicate with things in a way that seems like pure science fiction um but is is there a, is there a leaning in a certain way to to thinking about how um, equipment can be controlled or how you can relay information. Is it, so is that gestural? Is that um, verbal? Is is I've already alluded to the to the brain implants and the mind control. You know, we, we think about let's say it sounds like pure sci fi, but it's not. The technology's there. So is, is there a is there a direction you think that's already beginning to take?
1: So what I'd like to see
0: is absolute right, there'll be more thought control, more voice control, more AI-activated systems.
1: And of course, in the future, we will talk about sometimes dealing with the whole world of holograms, avatars, virtual world, etc. And I, I wonder how much of that will be relevant in the next few years. Obviously, I've tried to push that boundary, doing, giving talks uh, using my holograms, appearing as avatars in my operator theatre with other surgeons from around the world. And now I'm just developing those um, ideas into our curriculum. So we actually have virtual curriculums so people from around the world can be taught by me in in one of those kind of virtual platforms. And more recently, we pushed that boundary. When you said that, okay, what was that six years ago doing this kind of remote teaching? The last few months at Queen Mary College at Barts Medical School, where I I teach, I actually now do HoloLens teaching. The students aren't allowed to go face-to-face because of the lack of, uh, because of COVID-19. So I put them in the lecture theatre, all uh, social distance, 70 of them in a, in a capacity audience of 400. And then I go onto the wards with my HoloLens, for example. I stream, with bring X-rays, images, and I teach them remotely. So I'm actually at the front face, facing the patients, they're in safety and, and the, in, the, in, uh, in the lecture theater. And we've done now three or four of these, and it's worked really well. And you know, they are okay. They want more and more of this kind of teaching. So we've seen in that kind of example, how things have moved six years, whose perception, understanding, acceptance of these new technologies. Bartholomew, I, I agree. The future is going to be very
0: interesting. What um, interests me is 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 about one of the messages, uh, the, the, one of one of the kind of weird messages about vaccination. Um, you know, we've had a, a debate. You know, there's there's always been a debate about some someone will have an opinion, very much one side of the fence or the other, to say they should or they shouldn't. Um, in, you know, we've had an entire year of realizing that the thing that makes everything go away again and and keeps it away is vaccination. All of the other measures are to limit the exposure to the thing that we ultimately want to get rid of. Um, how do you feel the message could be best relayed so that the, the whole audience, Um, is hearing the the genuine benefits rather than you know someone that may be mixing that message up a little
1: yeah so it was really questions and I I I was very fortunate two days ago I went to my local GP and I was and I got my uh, Pfizer vaccine so I feel I feel the pressure's now off almost I really feel more relieved I finally have a vaccine but obviously what I am troubled by, and this is obviously what we're alluding to, is the fact that there so many people that are not sure about vaccines, either they're not sure about the science behind it, or they've been given wrong information, for example, or generally they have concerns, which of course is, is um, uh, we have to respect. But part of our job now has to be, how do we change that conversation? How do we ensure that people like me at healthcare, uh, at the front line, who are promoting, uh, you know, trying to make sure that everyone gets their vaccine, how do we use the right words to understand, to reflect, to ensure that people understand the message behind it all. How do we explain the science behind it in layman's terms so that people are more safe and secure? How do we change the way that we have those discussions? I think with that mutual respect, we have to understand people have concerns, that's okay. But actually, we know it's safe. It's been through wild clinical trials. Okay, it's been fast. People worry about the speed and the efficacy and the safety. Actually, no rules have been changed. It's always it's just been much faster because the global collaboration where we're in dire need of these new kind of medicational therapies. So it's that conversation. What we have, have faced the challenges, of course, is the kind of the, the um, I guess, the, the vehicle of social media, whether well, it's Twitter, it's Facebook, and the kind of the misinformation that's out there, people's concern being amplified very quickly. Um, and of course, there's you have your, your own little um, um, areas within social media that you concentrate on and that kind of perpetuate some of the myths. So I think society has got a role in this. Uh, the major tech companies have to have a role in ensuring that what's out there is accurate and scientifically proven, push out the right information and block things that are just unnecessary. And then us as a scientific and healthcare community to ensure we keep having conversations, to persuade, to make sure that people understand they can make the choice of course, but based on the real evidence, not based on someone who is a Twitter epidemiologist just because they have Twitter on their account and suddenly decide they know everything about vaccines. So I, I think we've got a job to do. And I'd implore everyone who has a chance to get the vaccine as quick as possible. It's what we've been waiting for. The lockdowns in the last nine months have been of twofold. One is to ensure we don't overwhelm the healthcare system. That's priority number one. Secondly, is wait for the vaccine to come so we can all get out of lockdown. This is why we've been suffering for nine months. So why you would not want to take it now, I have no idea. Because that's what we've been waiting for and compromise our quality of life, which so many people say there's been restriction of freedom. I get that. But whilst the evidence out there now we've got the solutions of those problems, let's let's use it. let's make sure we, we quickly get vaccinated as quick as possible. All the high-risk groups, of course, the first instant and others. But it's ongoing conversation, Dean. I think we've got a battle. But I'm 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 always hopeful that good overcomes evil in these situations where we need to make sure that we look after people um, for 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 humanity's sake.
0: Yeah, well maybe we need to have some kind of um... Equivalent of the Avengers, um, but with maybe more of a medical slant, and and we could <laughs> get out there to spread the good word. I, I was thinking about um, today and 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 speaking to you about you know how do we control things? You know what's the future? That's very much the question. You know what's next? Um, what do you see as you know twenty twenty one from a from a medical perspective, you know, and, and a broader view of that. But, but, you know, what do you think is the next thing? As in, what's our next focus? It's a really good question. So look, I think
1: the, the focus of 2021 is going to be how we make, what we've learned already, stick. You know, people call it this new normal or the new abnormal, as people have called it before. We've kind of reset the starting point for healthcare, almost. The doors have been opened for innovation, for technology to, to come into the healthcare system. So we're starting at a new point uh, in that sense. So how do we keep that going? How do we accelerate that same learning we've had before is going to be the key. So for example, we've seen this collaborative world with industry partners coming in, people who have different skill sets come to healthcare, offering their experience and their expertise and also to uh, help us in our, in our journey. But also it's technologies uh, now being translated into clinical practice. It's no more about the technology of the future, AI and robots. They're here now. Now, the question is, how do you use them? Where are the use cases? And you know, let's take AI, for example. AI has promised much. And I call AI the three things I call it the hype, the hope, and the reality. We've been through the hype at the beginning, what it could promise and deliver, and it failed to. The hope that it could improve healthcare. And now we're seeing the reality. And in 2021, we'll see now reuse cases of really good data coming out uh, of implementation of AI in the back end, whether it's radiology, whether it's dermatology, whatever it is, we're seeing it more routinely. So and part of it is saying it's sticking what we know already from now on, accelerating and bringing this text that will help us in the future. The other thing to think about is the way we treat our patients, of course, remote care is coming in. So I think um, the, the thing that um, I think it, it allows patients to be monitored differently is the fact that these technologies now connect them to their primary care or the secondary care physician. So, for example, if you're a diabetic or you have something called asthma or what's called COPD, which is a, a lung disease, often they are seen regularly in clinic, you know, coming to a hospital, paying the parking charges, trying to get a, kind of a seat in the outpatient's uh, clinic and seeing you. It takes uh, three or four hours, the whole journey. Actually, now we see they're managed differently at home with real-time monitoring, with data, for example, smart peak flow meter or uh, insulin pumps, for example, so you can see real data constantly. Yeah, you know, people like you know, using the uh, Apple Watch with ECG monitoring for atrial fibrillation or, or, other, or, or saturation, for example, an oxygen saturation in the Apple 6. So we're now seeing these utilities using more, more conveniently. So for me, it's not about the future anymore. It's already here, as far as I'm concerned, in, in the words of William Gibson, who describes that uh, very eloquently. But we're here now, so how do you now translate that and keep it going so more people can manage? So that's the first thing. It's about using that more widely. the other thing is to avoid the digital divide as we progress and rapidly move into these technologies and become more digital. How do you avoid the digital divide? How do you protect the vulnerable in society? How do you make sure that people who have no access to technology or innovation or even internet can still get good care? So we have this whole uh, social dilemma of how we move on so everyone in society feels empowered and also feels that they're getting a fair service. So I think as we drive, we sort of think about the the, the population as a whole and how we manage them. And that for me is more about social re-engineering society, government down approach, and for us as well sighted to ensure that we, we go on a journey together.
0: So what's next? The thing next is to make the now better by the sound of things it and uh, as you quite rightly say I and mean, that's that's fascinating you know the future is already here the thing that we clearly need to do now is have the right conversations with the right people in the right way um, which kind of addresses a lot of things um, but probably is something that as as we've become more I guess digitally reliant and probably social media reliant we've we've got we've probably got worse at um so i think there's there's definitely a role to be played for for individuals like yourself and i would definitely put you down as an individual because i know no one else like you Shafi. um uh, there's definitely a role there to be champions for not just uh, you know technology in general but very much specialist fields and the right conversations um so that we all have the right people to listen to um so I thank you so much for joining us and being able to share that incredible knowledge with us today. I I've, I've even worn my my Tesla suit in in celebration of of, of my connectivity with with technology and uh, luckily I haven't had anyone remotely trying to control my my physical movements or or too closely monitoring the data coming out, and then probably feeding it straight into Facebook. So, luckily, I haven't been that closely plugged into the internet. Um, but yeah, as always, it's it's not just um, educationally fulfilling, but it's always a pleasure to to chat. And uh, I I genuinely hope that the the audience and the wider audience gets to hear your words and and the words of all of our incredible individuals this week, um, because you know, I hope we've brought a, a, a taster of, of, of CES um, to the outside world. Thank you so much, Shafi. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you. So I hope we have indeed brought a, a genuine taste of CES to you this week, and you know what we really wanted to do more than anything else was, was bring conversation, Uh, bring the thought around what appears at CES all of those amazing scattered pieces of content devices platforms and all the things that we want to discover um, we want to bring it to you in a bite-sized chunk uh, and help ask that question what's next and hopefully give you some answers